This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the Leadership Strategist. Tonight's guest, Assistant Professor at St. Louis University, Dr. Tim Huffman. Hey, what you drink? Wow. How, how did you get into, into this work? I, I believe everyone has a calling and that at, at best, uh, our life is an attempt to work inside that calling. And I've explained it this way in some of the talks that I give. I've explained that I believe everyone is designed to be the greatest in the world at something. And therefore, your life's mission is to find your thing Find your thing so that you can get on with being awesome, becoming, yeah, being the greatest in the world. This seems like this is your thing, whether this is exactly your thing or close to it. It's, it feels like you're in the arena. Yeah. It's in my thing. Yeah. Uh, no, I believe in calling when I was in high school, I got involved in a lot of community organizations. You know, my family had some struggles while I was in high school and I really found some solace in organized life. And so when I went to college, I was like, nah, I want to study communication and I want to be a motivational speaker. Hmm. Cause, cause that's like the closest thing to an activist I had seen, you know, I'm going to go around and inspire young people, but like my, my methodologies have sort of been in what I would say matured since then. Like I don't approach the world as like, everyone's just dying to hear from Tim, you know, um, <laughs> I wanted to be more of a conversation than a mic drop. But while I was in college, I had my ethics teacher say, okay, you're studying communication. You're going to learn how to talk, but what will you say? Mm-hmm. And he, he convinced me to also study philosophy. Um, and so that, that's my kind of path is like a, as an activist philosopher, as a thinker about human communication and the way that it shapes our social world. And I'm very happy to get in like really abstract level conversations, you know, about what it all means. Um, and I'm also really happy to turn around and say, like, where are the cots coming for the winter haven that we're starting this weekend? Because it's going to freeze and the city <laughs> hasn't spent its money from uh, the ARPA funds yet. And uh, we don't have enough shelter beds. Right. You know, and so like that spectrum of abstraction to concreteness. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah, well, you, you bring up another interesting connection, because uh, after my 30 years in corporate America, in the last part of that time in corporate America, I was doing 
sales training and I was doing some some coaching, internal coaching, not really classical coaching, but just internal uh, advising, that kind of thing. And when I left, I thought, wow, I'm gonna be a motivational speaker, right? I, I love being in front of crowds. I'm not afraid of anyone, that kind of thing. And I joined the National Speakers Association and actually started watching those motivational speakers like Del Toro McNeil, and I befriended several of them, like Sir Charles Carey, who's uh, on an episode of Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. And the closer I got to what that is, the less it lined, it lined up with what I was looking to do. I am really, really enamored by the conversation because I am absolutely convinced that regardless of what my mom says, I don't have all the answers. And if I can engage someone in a conversation, someone smarter than I am, someone more traveled than I am, someone with different experiences than I am, I might get closer to what that answer might be. Absolutely. People talk about activism about as in voice, right? You've got to like raise your voice. I'm like, you got to raise your ears, right? <sighs> like we need to be the voice for the voiceless. Why don't you try being ears to the earless? Right. Like there are systems of power that are designed around not listening, actively structured in a way where it cannot hear the cry of the poor. And that's a problem. Right. And maybe your voice doesn't need to be added to that at all. But it is possible your ears need to be added to that. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Maybe I need to be a motivational speaker, but maybe I need to be a motivational listener and that mm. I could listen to the experiences of people who are systematically disenfranchised and walk into the halls of power and say, do you hear this? Because they got something to say. Oh my gosh, a motivational listener. Yeah, I, I just made have, that up. I, think, I was I just, just gonna say, I think up. you just coined something, man. That's right. <laughs> a motivational listener. I, I think it was John Buchan that said something like, um, the the objective of leadership is not to put greatness into society, but to elicit it because greatness is already there. Absolutely, absolutely. And, That's an asset-based or strength-based approach, 100. Um, and I think that many times, and, and I, I know that I, I fell into this certainly early in my leadership career, I felt a responsibility to be the one with the answer, that I had to be the brilliant one in the room for sure. And well, that's because we construct leadership <laughs> as the responsible party. So if there's a problem, there has to be a leader who responds. That's actually what the whole discourse of leadership is. Mm. And, and if you have a problem with what's going on, you find the leader so you can hang the negative responsibility on their door. <sighs> and if you're happy about what went down, you find the leader so you can hang the laurels at their door. It's actually less, and maybe this is a whole other thing that we can get into, yeah. but leadership is as much a discourse as it is a phenomenon. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But like how we talk about leadership is at least as real as what leadership actually is. Mm. And we construct it, it is a discourse of responsibility. Exactly. And so if you are the leader, you have to have something to say because that's the that's the the, the role that we think the leader plays. Yeah. I, I, I have explained something similar to my clients. And this is the way I've explained it because typically uh, I work with executives who are usually in their mid to late forties. They're they're just gotten into the C suites, or they're that's their next move, and they're trying to figure out how do I navigate that. And so that's usually that tends to be the clients that I work with. And one of the conversations that I have with them really early on is the way that you get noticed when you are entry level is by having 
the answers? How quickly can you parrot back the answer? If a, if a more senior person asks a question, I've got the answer right at, the tip, at, the, at my fingertips. That's how I get noticed. As you move into the more senior leadership positions, that doesn't work anymore. People are kind of expecting you to have a point of view. The way you get noticed as a senior leader, can you ask the right question? And going back to what we said earlier, can you ask the question that gets to the heart of the issue? Because the only thing worse than not having the right answer is having the right answer to the wrong question. So this, boy, this just really reinforces the importance of understanding what's going on, but understanding what's going on well enough to ask the question to elicit the information from the rest of the organization or from your client base. I love what you said. We're going to put some structure around this motivational listener because I think there's something there. Yeah. And I mean, the truth is like, there is a practice in social work called motivational interviewing. So I, I'm not like coming up with it from nothing. Um, and yeah, motivational interviewing is basically like, how can I listen to someone who's struggling in a way that helps them imagine their best future mm. and in so doing engage in what they want such that when they tell me what they want and I have resources, they're going to follow up on them. Right. Because consider how that gets done in inverse, right? Someone in poverty shows up to some case manager somewhere and the case manager says, well, here's how to fix all of your problems. And the person sitting there like, I didn't actually think that was a problem that I had, but okay, screw you anyway, right? Um, and, and, and again, this is the same, like selling someone something that they don't think they need, that's not going to go well, right? Um, so how can I be vulnerable to the experience of the other, right? Like how can I, you know, open myself to, to, their, to their world in a way that shapes me enough so that I respond in a way that calls them to that same, you know, accountability, responsibility, responsiveness. Oh my, all, all of my, all of my executive coaching friends are applauding you right now because that is, that really is, that really is the challenge of our work. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's very different than what I thought it was because uh, like I said, when, when I was in corporate America in my last role there, um, they, the, the role that I was in was, was, phrased as an internal coach. And I was basically leveraging all of my experiences, showing up, giving people advice on how to attack different things. I was not asking a whole lot of questions. That wasn't what I was called to do. And then when I started uh, getting into the world of professional coaching, um, it, they made it very clear that that is not your job to give, you, to give the answers. And as a matter of fact, I, I tend to be most effective as a coach when I am working with someone in an industry that I know absolutely nothing about. Because if you are, if you give me an opportunity to tell you what I think, <laughs> I'm probably gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it takes, it takes some restraint. I mean, to put a little bit of a critical read on it, part of what I think is at work here is that in order to succeed in, you know, kind of a lower level of an institution, my imagination has to be relatively domesticated to the rules of that organization. Yeah, very That's good. how power works, right? Like I have to think of possibilities in terms of what is required inside that space. Mm -hmm. But as I get higher, the expectation starts to change. And what I want is someone who's a thought leader, right? And so in some ways you have to uncultivate their imagination, right? You have to like reintroduce their imagination into the wild, 
And I actually think that, I mean, this happens in education too. So this isn't just a dig on business. We definitely cultivate our students' imaginations so that they imagine like the teacher. And a little bit of that is good because, you know, mentoring off of people who are brilliant can be helpful. Um, but if you only teach someone that the way that they get the right answer is to pen in what they think is possible, they're not going to be an innovator for tomorrow. Um, you know, so so radical imagination then becomes, you know, part of the methodology also, right? Um, how can I push so far out into the future that the solution is something that everyone would universally agree on, even if we would deeply disagree on how to get there? That is motivating, right? That is pragmatically useful. A, a dream, like actually worth having, not just a mission statement, because we said we had to have a mission statement, but like right. something that feels like a, a mission, right? That's got power. That's got real power. Yeah, I, I love what you said. One of the things that you started talking about was the difference between, and I've heard educators say this, the difference between teaching someone what to think and teaching someone how to think. Yeah how to recognize how they think and how to think in new ways. And yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know that was part of, I don't know if it was Socrates or Aristotle, where they, they were concerned that with innovation, people would stop learning how to think. They would stop uh, thinking for themselves and they would just start parroting back what they have heard, what they have read, that kind of thing. And I, I think that that's also the challenge with innovation, right? Because to your point, as you become more senior in any organization, a big part of your role really needs to be to be an innovator, which is to bring outside information in to do something, approach things in a different way. And this is also a shout out to uh, one of my guests, Jared Simmons, who has his own podcast called What is Innovation? And I wanna throw that to you. What, what, what would you say is innovation? All right, so time traveling. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a scholar activist. I ask questions for the sake of transforming society for the sake of justice, right? So um, recognize that the way that I approach most of these things isn't from precisely a business perspective. Not, not to say that I never think about business, but mostly I'm asking, you know, really broad conversations about what housing justice looks like, what economic justice looks like. And for me, innovation is that human power uh, to reconfigure the world by moving fluidly through the past and the present and the reflective past and the future. And so basically like, you know, someone who can look at what is here really radically and be very present to what is here, that person can cultivate the empathy that is required to design something that people actually freaking need. And that someone who can't be radically present is never going to be good at designing because they're never actually going to occupy the world that they're designing for. Oh, wow. But if all you do is radically occupy the present and you never push out into that future, then yeah, you're going to be stuck. You know, you're only ever going to be making incremental changes, right? So how do I go out and really anticipate trends that are coming this way? How do I really prepare for what seems impossible, right? How do I reach out into the future? So people who build innovative programs in homeless services, they often do it months, real activists in homelessness prepare for the winter during the summer, right? Everybody else is running around sweating their, their clothes off and, and the homeless activist is like, oh my God, winter, right? Um, because they know how to go into the future and build. But then you also got to go into the past, 
there, there's a term sankofa. It means go back and pick it up. And there's a, there's a terrible amnesia that we also have as a society where we've forgotten that we used to do things well. We've forgotten the ways that we treated each other with dignity. And so, so innovation is not only about the future. Um, it's also about being able to walk through the traditions that we bring, the legacies that people have, and address those traumas and those scars, as you, as you named in the introduction. Um, and how can I trace the scars and understand them as the beginning of the art that defines the topography of my body? And how do I bring, bring those things into conversation with each other? Um, and so innovation is re requires all of that radical presence, radical imagination and radical remembering. And then when you bring those three things together with the people who are typically excluded from the process of creating the world, you come up with some really amazing innovative stuff because data and democracy and design are really like three parts of the same transaction. And when you bring that together, uh, representation, recreation and understanding shit happens. Yeah. Hey, so one of the things that, uh, you know, that I often talk about because the name of the podcast is whiskey, jazz and leadership. And in my head, those three things connect, but I love asking my guests, especially guests who have a better command of vocabulary than I do to help me articulate what is the connection between at least jazz and leadership. Uh, because I, I know that you're a fan of New Orleans jazz. Uh, you're certainly a fan of jazz theory. In my head, it just, it connects. It doesn't require an explanation. Just it, just it just is. But helping other people understand that connection has been fun for me. What would be your attempt at explaining how those three connect? Fluid relationships. I, I don't drink alcohol personally, but I actually love alcohol because people sit around and drink alcohol and become good friends. Fluid relationships. Um, why is jazz different than other forms of music? It's because it understands that every note has a relationship with all of the notes. Mm -hmm. And so when many musicians in a, many musical traditions, they'll imagine a key is kind of like, I have to play only the notes inside this key. I understand all of my chords as constructed out of the notes available in this key. And the jazz musician is like, every note is a key, right? Like every note is connected to every other note. And even though I might generally be in this key, um, that doesn't mean that I can't flow through, you know, the 12 or infinite number of tones uh, that exist um, in order to make whatever point I want to make in that moment. And so instead of a structured or, I mean, it's structured, but instead of a rigidly defined musical tonal relationship, jazz celebrates a fluidly defined mm -hmm. tonal relationship, fluid relationships. I love it. Bring that and back to leadership so, for me. So leadership, right? What I would say is that leadership, the only principle definition of leadership I have ever encountered is that leadership is public humanity. It is being a person who is able to be observed inside some kind of public. It could be a small public. It could be the public constituted by like a classroom or a, a playground, um, or it could be the, the, the Twitter, you know, the largest uh, digital platform, uh, you know, fastest digital platform in the world. Um, by having your humanity being public, it means that's uh, up for negotiation, whether or not you're good or bad, 
moral or immoral. Um, that's all shifting. Yeah, who, who counts as the leader? Who's the leader in this particular moment? All of that is up for grabs also. And I think that the good leader knows how to step into a moment and dignify a situation, humanize a situation, make something seem important and special in that moment, but also knows how to step away and take a, a high level view. I have some critiques of the idea of leadership, which I'll get into if you're interested, but I think that a talented leader knows how to engage in a fluid set of relationships um, to accommodate the needs in front of them. Um, and, and that we require that uh, as a society of excellent leaders. So fluid relationships, that's my cheeky answer. I, I that's, love it. That's the connection. I love it. You're going to, you're going to, that's tweetable. That's tweetable, man. <laughs> Ah, so, you know, one of the other things that you said earlier that I can't get out of my head, I can't unhear this now. You said that part of innovation is remembering because we have a tendency to forget. I see this more in Western civilizations than I do in any other civilization where we don't honor the past as much as other cultures do. Why do you think that is? Specifically, the United States, we're a very young country. With that youth comes kind of like a future orientation. We've got a relatively short history. And, and by that, I mean, lots of the people who had an older history have been killed, you know, not, not to put too fine a point on it. There have been people here for a long time, but uh, we didn't take their histories so seriously when we were tearing them out of their communities and putting them in schools so they wouldn't know how to speak their language, right? We kind of destroyed the history of this yeah. continent. And uh, I mean, I guess I could name we, right? Like European settlers, right? Like different folks encounter that legacy in different ways. Anyway, I mean, so some of it is cultural. And, and I think that some of the like love of technology and love of forward progress, like just comes towards a certain nostalgia for the future instead of a nostalgia for the past. If you just say new and improved, people assume that that's real because new means improved, right? <laughs> As opposed to new and devolved, right? Um, the software update on your phone might be a trap, right? Um, that might not be new and improved. Anyway, yeah, without getting into a whole critique, it's part of the history of colonization and not being connected and having respect for what has come before um, and only thinking, what good does it do me now and moving forward? Yeah. Um, and that is a sickness, you know, and it's a sickness, if I'll just dip into politics, that will kill our planet if we don't figure out how to do it, right? Yeah. We have to be able to slow down. We have to be able to rest. And we have to be able to remember. And COVID-19 has taught us that we as a society, I mean, we just got told, no, if we stop, even for a week, everything's going to fall apart. So many states refuse to close down. If we stop at all, everything is gonna is gonna come come to a, a smashing halt. And I think that's no way to run society. I think sometimes we've got to be slow. Not all the time. I'm good moving fast, but sometimes we got to be slow. And part of being slow is resting, and part of being slow is remembering. Uh, if you never stop, you never remember. I love it. I love it. Well, man, I, I, I'll tell you, this has been another incredible conversation. I'm going to drag you into the VIP room because there are a couple of other things I want you to get, go even deeper in. But this is enough for those who are just listening to the free podcast. I, I don't think anything happens by chance. Uh, I think that there was a reason why someone decided to invite me to uh, be an old timer at a board at a board celebration. 
uh, there's a reason why I decided to go. There's a reason why you decided to attend instead of any number of things that you could have been doing with your time. And I am so appreciative that we decided to meet over the chicken fingers that day, <laughs> uh, as opposed to anything else we could have been doing, because I feel better because of this conversation and hopefully the, the beginnings of this relationship. Any final thoughts you want to share on this side of the velvet rope? Yeah, I'll just say in closing that my deepest desire for leaders everywhere is that they recognize that leadership is only one of many things that organize. No one leads Thanksgiving. Mm. You know what I mean? There's no leader of Thanksgiving. It's the cook, but the cook is sufficient. It's enough to organize Thanksgiving. No one knows the leader of family, right? There are parents and being a parent is enough. And when you look at how we organize our society, sometimes you are called to be a leader. Sometimes you are called into a particular kind of public humanity and it is required. But for me, it's about like 5% of the work. Very recently, I facilitated a, a, a meeting of the board of the nonprofit organization we were talking about. And afterwards, someone said, Tim, you did a really good job leading the meeting. And I said, no, I did a really good job facilitating the meeting. Leading would have looked different and you would have liked it less because that meeting didn't need a leader. It needed a facilitator. And it's just my prayer that when we look out into how our organizations really function, we recognize, oh, wow. It's organized by all of these acts of humanity, of the drivers, of the cooks, of the secretaries, right? All of those, of the programmers, of the architects, all of these things organize human affairs. And even if my title is leader, I might not actually called to be a leader all of the time. Sometimes I might need to cook. Sometimes I might need to clean. And I shouldn't be afraid to step into the role of leader when it is required. But nobody gives me crap for not leading my classroom. It is simply enough to teach. And maybe maybe they need a hero one day, the leader hero, but maybe they need something else from you. So that's my closing thought. I love it. That is one heck of a closing thought. And that is just going to set up the rest of this conversation in the VIP room. If you are not a VIP, dude, I don't know what you're doing. I, I, you're, 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 miss, you're missing out. You're missing out. <laughs> So, hey, man, uh, raise your raise your chai tea. I'm going to raise my Thomas Handy ride. And just, again, thank you so much. And uh, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.